We are very excited to be starting a new series today, looking together at the Lord's Prayer. As you and said, God willing, we plan to work through this over these next seven weeks of summer. That's British summer. Um, and I've been praying already that this will be a rich uh, and encouraging experience for all of us. Um, here, here's what we're going to We've got quite a bit to get through. Here's what we're going to try and do today. I want to start by making two quick observations about the Lord's Prayer. We'll try and do that fairly briefly. And then we're going to spend most of our time looking into how Jesus introduces this prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And 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 we'll get into the prayer slightly as well. So first of all, a couple of observations. First of all, I want to suggest to you that the Lord's Prayer does two things. First of all, it exposes some of the challenges that we face. Um, I think Ben said to us while we were working through the book of James that, and I think this is true, that everyone who has ever written a book on prayer or preached on prayer seems to start by acknowledging how hard prayer is. Many of us sense that prayer is important, but we're perhaps not quite sure what it involves or how to do it. One author suggests two extremes. At the one end, at its lowest, prayer is shouting into the void on the off chance that there might be someone listening. While at the other end, at its highest, prayer is full of faith and love as we experience and delight in God's kindness and generosity and love. Most of the time, we're probably somewhere in between those two Um, But here are two challenges for us to bear in mind as we approach the Lord's Prayer. The first is familiarity. Familiarity. The fact that we know these words so well can hinder them penetrating our hearts as they ought to. Tim Keller Uh, claims that the Lord's Prayer may actually be the single set of words that have been spoken more often than any other set of words in the history of the world. That's quite a claim, isn't it? The single set of words spoken more often than any other set of words in the history of the world. But of course that means, can mean, that we're able to recite them without ever grasping the sheer, simple, helpful glory of them. But a second challenge, if the first challenge is familiarity, we know it so well, the second challenge, I think, is possibly cynicism. Someone has described the age in which we live as the age of cynicism. It's like the air that we breathe without even realising that we're breathing it. The Lord's Prayer sounds poetic and very nice but does anyone ever, does anyone believe this anymore I, I wonder as a society whether we actually sometimes take pride in our skepticism we sometimes feel very satisfied don't we with ourselves that we're so modern and savvy we tell ourselves that we're in the know and we're able to see through things Many years ago, C.S. Lewis pointed out that if you're the kind of person who sees through everything, 
then in the end everything becomes transparent and you actually see nothing at all. And there's a weariness and a, and a loneliness in cynicism, as if we think that being more cynical will protect us from being crushed by disappointment somehow. But see how Jesus here invites us to confident trust in our Heavenly Father, even when, deep down, we may be secretly caressing doubts that it all sounds too good to be true. I think this prayer is a brilliant antidote to cynicism. It's so short and yet so very intimate. It's so bold and yet so humble. There's a passionate longing here and yet at the same time a deep submission to God. These words are brilliant. I hope in the next few weeks that we can overcome both the familiarity that so easily deadens us and the cynicism that can gradually harden us and open our eyes and our imaginations to the joy and delight found here in these stunning, familiar words. But there's a second observation I want to make, and that is this, that the Lord's Prayer not only exposes some of the challenges that we face, it also reveals something of what God is truly like. I think in its context here, Jesus is not saying, when you pray, remember these words and recite them exactly and as Christians often, we regularly use the Lord's Prayer, and, and that's fine. But the, the sense here, I think, is that Jesus is providing more of a, a model, a framework for our prayers. One writer suggests that this is the kind of scaffolding to build your prayers on, which I think is a great image. These are the kind of themes that you should have in mind. And what that means is that we don't need to guess what God is like or make up a God in our own imaginations. Let's begin here by reminding ourselves of what we have here. In simple terms, there's a beginning and an end. And in the middle, there are six separate brief prayer requests. I think the beginning, first of all, tells us that God is personal. It's easy to gloss over that. This prayer isn't like a magic spell or some kind of magic formula or charm. Jesus here invites us to come to God as our Father. Jesus invites us to come to him and to use ordinary, everyday words to talk to him. Secondly, we then see, I think, that God is also very great. He is our Father in heaven. The first three prayer requests of the six, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They're all about God's glory and kingdom and honour and power. This is an expression of love and adoration and worship 
before we even get to the asking for things part. And what it shows is that this God isn't a figment of our human imagination. He isn't some kind of idol that we've erected. This prayer isn't the same as positive thinking or wishful thinking. Thirdly, Jesus is encouraging us here to see and to sense that God is also good and that he cares deeply for us. The second three requests are all very realistic about our human needs, our broken relationships that need forgiveness, our vulnerability to the ravages of evil that are present in the world. And so we see that God is not just personal and great, he's also kind. He's interested in the details of our lives. We have permission to come to him as our loving father. And then lastly, the ending that's obscured in a footnote in our NIV Bibles. Um, as it happens, uh, Elliot is going to preach on that verse. And I said to him, I don't think anyone's ever preached on a footnote before. But um, Elliot's going to do that for us at the end of this series. But this reminders, doesn't it? Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. It reminds us that God is king. The world doesn't revolve around us. It revolves around him. It's a wonderful prayer to pray. You can see then that everything about this prayer assumes a certain kind of God, doesn't it? When Jesus teaches this prayer, we can see that God is personal and in control. The throne room of the universe is not vacant. God is good and kind, not absent or cruel. And I, I wonder when we put these two ideas together, I, I love the fact that the Bible is always doing this. The Bible is always exposing our shortcomings and then reminding us how much God loves us to come to him for help. And saying it like this kind of reminds of that, doesn't it? There are challenges here. We find this hard. And then Jesus says, when you pray, say, our Father, our Father. This prayer also puts our human kind of humanness in its rightful place. We, we are not just random accidents, but created by God to know him, to love him, to relate to him. And isn't it striking, isn't it striking that this prayer is so corporate? We're also made for each other. Jesus didn't teach us to pray, my father. He taught us as individuals to pray, our father. This prayer shows that we need God and we need one another. And I think it teaches us that loving God more will always work itself out in us loving each other better. Our Father. Well, so much for an introduction. Let's dig a little deeper. This um, 
passage on prayer here in Matthew comes right in the middle of a famous sermon that Jesus preached that's become known as the Sermon on the Mount. This prayer slap bang in the middle of it. So there's a context here and I want to spend the rest of our time just um, looking at this with you because I think it's brilliant. Um, Before Jesus introduces this prayer, he, he essentially identifies two different ways not to pray. So Jesus basically says here, when you pray, don't pray like this and don't pray like this. Instead, when you pray, pray like this. And he gives us the Lord's Prayer. Couldn't be simpler, that, could it? First of all, I want you to notice that he refers to two different groups of people who seem to get prayer wrong. Look with me at verse 5, where Jesus says, When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. So they're the first group. And then later on in verse 7, Jesus says, And when you pray, don't be like the pagans. So they're the second group. The first group is essentially religious people who do know how to pray. And the second group, some some translations say Gentiles, they're they're the non-Jews, the pagans, the religious outsiders, who... They still do pray from time to time, but they don't really know God or who he is or how to pray. And they make all kinds of mistaken assumptions when they come to God in prayer. It's very striking to me that Jesus speaks here first to the heavy, heavily religious person. And he also speaks to what we might call the secular person Jesus says, don't pray like them and don't pray like them. When you pray, pray like this. So let's take the first group first, shall we? Start at the beginning. The hypocrites, as Jesus calls them. I wonder what they made of that. The religious person. Jesus warns that the problem for religious people who do know how to pray, in a sense, is the problem of hypocrisy. I'm going to say that with the Yorkshire accent with no H. Hypocrisy. In this case, I want to define this as wearing a mask of pretense in order to gain the approval of other people who are watching. I think here Jesus really seems to ham this up as as a kind of comedy show. I I don't know. Uh, Sometimes during public fasting or religious festivals a trumpet would blow as a call to prayer and what Jesus is caricaturing I think here is the kind of person who sets out for a walk at the perfect time maybe they've timed it if I set out at 5-2 at 2 o'clock the trumpet will blow and I will just happen to be on the street corner what a shame And I'll have to turn towards the temple and lift up my arms and pray in a loud voice towards the temple. What a shame that everyone will be able to listen. This is the kind of person who does that on purpose, to get noticed. In another place, Jesus makes up a story about a Pharisee guy who prays both loudly and proudly 
Oh, how I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other people. Thieves, criminals, the immoral and all the other scumbags. I'm so thankful that you've made me me. That Jesus is poking fun at this kind of arrogance. Then Jesus points to those who pray in the synagogue, but they do it so theatrically as if they're preaching a sermon back to God to show off all their knowledge. And then they sit down and bask in people's perceived admiration of them. They look like they're praying. What they're actually doing is showing off. They're using prayer, prayer of all things, to say, everybody look at me. This is a kind of person who only prays to look good and gain the approval of other people. And you've got to love the practical advice that Jesus gives here. Jesus understands how prone we are, even in our best moments, to being self-centered. And his advice here. It's so realistic, isn't it? It doesn't sound like an angry or a condemning response. Instead, Jesus gently suggests a better way. And in doing so, he so helpfully puts his finger on the heart issue. Look at verse 6. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Jesus reminds us in one sentence that prayer is for God's ears alone. It's not an exhibition for a human audience. And I think a byproduct of this is that this reminds us that it is actually who we are in private... That, that's who we really are, isn't it? That's when the mask comes off. And a great way to avoid the temptation to be trying to impress other people is to take the mask off and to pray to God on your own when no one's watching. I think we need to remember here that first century houses are not like the ones in Broome here with extra bedrooms and extra bathrooms. Often the homes might have been one room where the whole family lives communally. So in my imagination, I'm seeing a person slinking off to the storeroom, closing the door behind them and sitting in the dark on a sack of grain to snatch a few moments conversation with God. Isn't it interesting too that Jesus speaks of reward here? If you pray to the watching gallery, Jesus says you already have your reward. If you are praying so that people admire you, you basically got what you came for. But God wasn't listening. But when you pray to your father, who sees what is done in secret, he sees it and hears it. And he rewards you. I'm, I'm not sure we like the idea of reward. It all sounds a little bit missionary, doesn't it? Um, 
But I think there's something very important lurking behind Jesus' words here. For example, we, we would say that if someone married for money, you know, we, we, would, we would say that's not a good thing. You're a, you're a gold digger or something worse, you know. You, to marry for money, that's a, that's a base motive. But if someone marries for love, the truth is that it's being married that is the reward of that. When we do something for love, the thing itself is its own reward. And so here, I think, with prayer, the real reward here is not that God or anyone else actually hands out medals or trophies or ribbons. The reward is the fact that God sees and hears And when we pray to him, he gives us himself. The reward is the thing itself, when the thing is done for love. So, it's important, I think, here to say that Jesus is not condemning all public prayer. The book of Acts wouldn't be in the Bible if that were true. Lots of public praying in the book of Acts. Jesus isn't saying... We must never pray in public. Of course, Jesus is talking here about our motive in praying. Do you pray when you're on your own? Because you love him. Or do you just want to be admired? Is your public praying an overflow of your praying in secret? in the storeroom, sat on the sack of grain, you know. Or is it a performance designed to impress others? Jesus says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who wear a mask. They're pretending to gain the approval of other people. Secondly, let's have a look at the second group. We're down to verse 7 now. Consider to the pagans. They do also pray sometimes. Maybe it happens when they're in desperate need, but they, they then have this mistaken notion that God's asleep somehow and they've got to kind of wake him up and badger a reluctant God to listen. Jesus characterizes their praying as babbling. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. Why? For they think they'll be heard because of their many words. This is the kind of person who thinks, the more I pray, the louder I pray, the more God will hear. So this kind of praying is more transactional. Do you get that? The more I put in, the more God will be disposed to listen. They, They think that prayer is almost trying to strike a bargain with God to gain his approval. I think there is more than a hint of superstition in this group. The idea of using many words is a very interesting one. I think in the first century, this this could include the scattergun approach of shooting off prayers to all the gods you can think of in the hope that one of them might be listening. We have examples actually of ancient prayers where the person praying piles up alternative names of gods in the hope that one of them might be awake and listening 
Sometimes many words might be repeating some key phrase over and over again as if it were a magic spell. I think the real irony is that you could do that with the Lord's Prayer. But in the ancient world, people sometimes thought that the gods wouldn't listen to you if you didn't get the formula exactly right. There's a story of one guy who was thrown into prison because he was praying at a public sacrifice and he forgot to mention something. They believed the gods were patty. You had to take meticulous care to address them correctly or they wouldn't listen or worse. Other prayers were long prayers that were basically flattery. People recited long lists of a god's achievements or attributes. The more you butter up the gods, the more they're likely to prick up their ears. And then still others might pray more contractually. So when they were praying, they would list all the things they'd done or all the things they were promising to do to try and persuade the gods they're praying to to act on their behalf. Do you see the motive behind the many words? It's transactional. The more I pray, the more God will answer. In fact, I'll deserve it. (laughs) If I pray a lot, he'll owe me. Jesus very simply says here, one writer says this, babbling is not the way to the heart of God. God is not so deaf or reluctant that only long, noisy prayers can wake him up. But look with me at the reason that Jesus gives, though, because I I think this is deeply encouraging. Let let me say it like this. For example, Jesus could have said to, to people who babble and use many words, Jesus could have said here, show some respect, guys. Remember who you're praying to. God is not interested in your ridiculous babbling, so shut your silly mouth. Jesus could have said something like that, couldn't he? This is about respect. Who do you think you're talking to? But did you notice that Jesus argues in completely the opposite direction? Look at verse 8. Do not pray like the pagans, babbling, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Why? For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus doesn't say stop babbling because you should show more respect. Jesus says you can stop babbling because this God already cares for you very deeply. You get the difference. How gentle Jesus is. So Jesus says, don't pray like this. Don't put on a mask of pretense to impress other people. And don't pray like this. There's no need to bargain with a reluctant God. It occurs to me that these two wrong ways actually might come back to familiarity and cynicism. Maybe on one side, the religious person is too familiar and looking for something to do. And on the other side, the unbeliever is cynical in assuming that there's something to doubt. But it is to me as if Jesus drives this 
huge, great, big tractor through both. (laughs) A tractor of grace through these wrong ideas. Look again at verse 9 now. Don't pray like this. Don't pray like this. This, then, says Jesus, is how you should pray. Our Father. So, having told his hearers how not to pray, Jesus now turns to show them how they should pray. And here is the sublime truth from the lips of Jesus. We actually don't need to wear a mask and pretend to be somebody that we're not. And we don't need to do anything at all to overcome some reluctance in a God who's asleep somehow. God knows what we need before we even ask him. And here's an affectionate and compassionate father who is overjoyed to welcome and hear and provide for his children. This then is how you should pray. Our Father. For Jesus, prayer is not a complicated ritual. But the simple cry of trust from a loving child to the best of fathers. I wish we had more time to explore some of the wonderful encouraging things that the Bible says about God being our Father. But let me close just by touching on 15 of them. I mean three of them. (laughs) Three, three, just three, three. You heard that, didn't you? First of all, Is it not wonderfully compelling that it's Jesus who says this? You get that? This isn't isn't some random person saying this. And think about who Jesus is. Only Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the Father, could say this. And what he's doing is inviting us humans into the relationship he has enjoyed with his father forever. Jesus could have said, when you pray, you must address God with all of his posh names. You must address him as glorious, majestic, almighty. He could have piled on all the great titles for God in the Bible. But perhaps the truth is that we already sense that God is powerful and holy and infinite and eternal. What we struggle with is the idea that such a God could also be our Father. And isn't it striking that Jesus starts there, our Father? This is what Jesus seems to want us to grasp. And the amazing thing in the Gospels is that the disciples saw the joyful excitement of Jesus in this. Jesus and his disciples will have spoken Aramaic, similar to Hebrew. And when Jesus prayed, it seems that he used an Aramaic word, the word Abba. Not the singing group, but the the word Abba. 
to address his father. No one had ever used a word like Abba to address God. It was an intimate and familiar word. Maybe the nearest we could say in English would be dad. This delightful, joyful closeness and intimacy that Jesus enjoyed with his father uniquely so burned itself into the consciousness of his disciples that when they wrote the New Testament in Greek, they took the Aramaic word Abba and brought it into the Greek So, for example, let me read to you. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, says this. You did not receive... He's writing in Greek. It's translated into English because we don't know Greek. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, what? Abba, Father. Paul says the same thing in Galatians. It's not just a one-off. When we stop and think about it, actually... Jesus could not have prayed the Lord's Prayer in its entirety because he had no sins that needed forgiving. Jesus' relationship with his Father is unique and eternal because he is a true son with a capital S in a way that we can never be. And yet here... This true son invites his friends to call his wonderful father their own Abba Father. When you pray, say our father. What a start. Second, let's be quick. I want to just pause here and underline the importance of Christian conversion. So here's what I mean by that. As, as humans, I think we can all call God our creator. But we can't all call God our father in quite the same way unless we've truly become his children. In fact, some Jews came to Jesus in John's gospel, John chapter 8, and their argument was, we don't know who you are, Jesus, but God's our father. And Jesus told them off and said, actually, your father, you think God's your father, If God were truly your father, Jesus says in John chapter 8, you would know and love me because my father is the one who sent me. How can God be your father if you don't recognize me? The truth is that this great father, in his infinite love for sinful humans like us, sent his son, Jesus, to reconcile us to himself and to adopt us as his children. Despite us being God's enemies, he conquers our stubbornness and makes us his children. And how do we then become a child of God and know God as our father? It is by faith in Jesus, the son who he sent. I think we might even see this prayer here that Jesus teaches as a kind of invitation. Maybe you can hear it this way this afternoon. Here is Jesus 
inviting us to turn from ourselves, from our sins, and to come home to God as our Father. I, someone might think, would God really be a father to someone like me? Ian, if you knew how far I've run from him, I didn't even know that I was running, but now I can see that I was. If only you knew how my life has played out and the things I've done wrong. Let, rem let me remind you that this same Jesus told the story of a prodigal son who hated his dad and left home and spent all his money and one day in ruin he got up and came home wondering how his dad would react and what happens the father sees him coming as if he'd been at the gate wearing binoculars the whole time and he sprints down the lane and despite the fact that his son now smells of pigs, he throws his arms around him and kisses him. And the son says, Dad, calm down. <laughs> I'm not worthy anymore to be a son of yours after the things I've done to hate you. Just give me a job. Just give me a job and I'll earn my keep. And the father says, nonsense. Somebody bring a coat. Somebody else brings some jewellery. Somebody brings some shoes. And somebody put the oven on gas mark six and put a roast dinner on. Because tonight we're having a party. This son of mine was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. Jesus tells this story because he knows what his father's like. He knows how much... His father loves to welcome those who come home. And I, the question for you is, has there come a point, a moment, a day, a period in your life where you too have come home to be embraced as a child of this father? Maybe it could be now. Lastly, and finally, I want to underline what confidence this truth should inspire in our hearts if we are children of God. Do you see that Jesus is telling us here, you don't need to pretend, you don't need to perform because you're not an orphan. You're not an orphan. I, I feel like I want to pause here and say something like, to all of you, I want to say something like, cheer up. You know, I want to say cheer up. I, I'm not trying to relegate some of the hard things that we're facing. If God is your father, you have glory in your lives and hearts. Cheer up. You are a beloved child of the king. 
And after all, God is the father that defines what all other good fathers should look like. He's the best of fathers. He's been doing it the longest. He's, he's ancient and eternal, perfect and wise, loving and generous and wealthy. He is a father who invests in his beloved children, teaching them to grow, disciplining them when necessary, training them, developing them, transforming them, changing them. Sympathetic to our needs and fears. He's not a demanding, perfectionist, distant father but one who is pleased with even the smallest signs of goodness. And therefore so understanding and gentle with his children, he hears us and protects us and provides for us. With God as our Father, we can never lack anything that he believes is good for us. And he promises to give us everything we need so that by his grace and power, we will make it home to the glory yet to come. He calls us to trust him, to depend upon him, to imitate him, to submit to him and to obey him. Are you delighted in the fact that you are a child of God? John, who was a disciple of Jesus, wrote these words in a letter when he was an old man. 1 John chapter 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. As we close, some of us might need to lose the baggage of faulty ideas because of fathers who were sadly not like this and learn to stop saying, I can't trust God. You can. Because God is the best of fathers who loves you. Some of us equally might need to lose the independence and the pride that says, I won't trust him. You should, because here is a God, you, you should trust him more than you trust yourself, because here's a father who knows you better than you know yourself. One writer says this, the very thing we are afraid of, our brokenness, is the door to our father's heart. The very thing we're afraid of, our brokenness, is the door to our Father's heart. You don't need to wear a mask to impress him. You don't need to wake God up as if he were deaf. Hear the words of Jesus. This then is how you should pray. Our Father. We're going to sing. Before we do, let's bow for a moment reflection
Our Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. We thank you for this passage. So simple, but so profound. We thank you for Jesus, who is amazing. And we thank you that he points us to you, our Father in heaven. Father, would you draw us by your kindness and would you, would you help us to unlearn the cynicism that we so often feel that clings to us? Would you draw us to yourself? Maybe there's someone here who will come home to you for the first time, even today. Maybe there's some child of yours here who is feeling broken and desperate and whose faith burns low. Maybe today is the day to come and say, Our Father. Father, would you bless our hearts and would you help us to remember the our part, help us to love one another as we seek to love you. And we pray these things in the good and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.